learning from your phone today because it gives me a great object lesson for what I will start with, which is, uh, as we're going through John, and we did this with Mark, is my encouragement was for, for people to gain familiarity with the gospel, with the theme of the gospel, the, the art of the gospel. One of the images we used was similar to that of um, a mosaic, right? That you have all these tiles that make up who you believe Jesus is and how Jesus becomes real to you, right? And so that tile for us today is a combination of of hymns and the Bible and the New Testament and the Old Testament and, and uh, Chris Tomlin's songs and all that stuff that adds up to make this is who I hold out Jesus to be. But one of the things we try to do from the start of the new year all the way until Easter is sit with one gospel so that we can sort of examine one tile that makes up that image of who Jesus is. And so last year I printed off multiple copies of the Gospel of Mark without uh, chapters or verses and stapled them together and fought with my copier. If you've seen office space where the guy like takes out the copier and beats it up in the parking lot, that's near my life sometimes with these copiers. Uh, and so this year it was like, what's my other option with the Gospel of John? So what I did was I got these, these little print copies of the Gospel of John. Now it's great that we have the technology to be able to read scripture from our phones, but one of my concerns, and this is probably a classic phrase that many of you have heard before, is that the medium, the, the way in which you get your information has a way of also becoming the message. So, like, if you think about it, like, when TV came out, everybody was like, what's on TV is what we're concerned about. But what Marshall McLuhan, the guy who talked about this is, actually said, it's the way that TV is visualized to you. It's now that things are visualized. It's now that it's on in the house. I mean, he would be pointing out that now everybody has their own TVs. Now everybody has their own screens that these actually contain more of the message than we think they do. And so I was reading an article about a professor at a college who was teaching a, a young woman in literature, and she was referencing something in the Bible. She wasn't a believer, and he said, you know, you might want to get, like, a Bible. You know, that wouldn't be a bad investment if you want to be a PhD in, in literature. It's all over Shakespeare. It's all over most of the Western canon, allusions to the Bible. You might want one print Bible. And she laughed at him. Um, because she was like, we, I could just access it all on my phone. Why would I want that? And so what I, what I hope for this is that, you know, I got you a print Bible uh, so that you can read and get into John. Now, this, this copy of John doesn't have um, chapters or verses or headings. And so I think it makes it easier for you to sort of get into the text. You, can, you don't have to take one. I'm just going to hand out as many as I can. Uh, you can leave it on the row if you don't want one. But I think it'll help us get into the character of what John is trying to say to us. What's the point of the Gospel of John? How is John um, becoming real to us? And so, and this is most important, I think, with John in, in, in some reasons, because John actually, um, John actually is the most distinct out of all the Gospels. It's got its own character. It's got its own way of seeing Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we talked about last week, all make up these similar Gospels, these Gospels that have some sort of similar connection to them. But when we get to the Gospel of John, there's this whole different way that he presents this story. One of the ways we talked about it last week is that he presents it almost from the back to the beginning. The Gospel of John actually contains these words at the end. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. Which, like, for modern people, we're like, surely that's a mistake. We want all the information we can get. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
John says that this is why he writes his gospel near the end. And so, like, if you were giving testimony in a court and you were like, I wrote this testimony this way with these signs so that you would believe me, people would be like, well, okay, we can't trust that person because they're already... But John is laying his hands on the table. For him, Jesus is the living one whom you can have life in. He's saying that this book that he wrote and compiled for you is so that you may have life in his name. That you may come to the saving knowledge of life in Jesus Christ. And that may become real for you in some way. And so that's why everybody has a Gospel of John now. If you don't, you got a discount if you were... If, so... If you know somebody who might like a copy of the Gospel of John, you can pick one up too. If you know some kids who might want a copy of the Gospel of John, uh, it was like such a discount that it didn't make sense to order third. Um, this is America. Um, so this is the shape of the Gospel of John, just to give you a sign. I was hoping to find a good graphic that had this, but I had to make it myself, so forgive me. Um, uh, but this is the standard sort of shape of what people think the Gospel of John is. There's chapter one, which we'll finish today, which is this prologue. And then chapters 2 through 12 make up what this is called the, the book of signs, the book of miracles, that, that sort of Jesus goes to these places, particularly around festivals that the, the Jewish people are celebrating, and he makes some sort of claim for himself. And he has seven of these sort of leading up to the next part of the book, which is the book of glory or the book of passion. So Jesus enters Jerusalem for the end of his ministry in chapter 13, actually, which when I think of the Gospels, that always seems early for me with as long as this Gospel is. So he's in Jerusalem for this book of glory and passion, and here he teaches the disciples very particularly what he's about to do and how his life is to take shape. He has this trial with Pontius Pilate, and, and um, he goes to the cross and is crucified and then raises, and then chapter 21 has this sort of epilogue that sort of ends the story. And so this is the book of John. The other thing you'll notice about the book of John is John loves the number seven. There are seven I am statements in the book of John. There are seven signs in the book of John. There are seven I am something statements, actually. There are seven I am just I am's, and then there are seven statements that say, I am the bread of life, I am the living water, I am the gate, I am the good shepherd. There are seven statements that say these things. And these things, the reason why I think these are important is I don't think you'd notice them if you were just plowing through the Bible over and over again. But John's love of seven brings us to this idea of completion, of new creation, that John's, John's theme for himself is this new creation theme, and this is why um, the book, I think it's an interesting thing that the book ends with Mary confusing him with a gardener. Um, that draws us back to the, to the Garden of Eden in some ways, but it also drives us back to this point of this, this is new creation that God has done. God is beginning sort of a new garden, a new place at the end, and, and so that's, that's your uh, preview of the Easter sermon. Um, so I'm excited to walk with John. I'm excited for you guys to have a chance to read through it in, in, this, in this print Bible that we have, um, and for us to sort of journey and look at John together, to have it be something that, that can take root in our lives, that, that John for the season of life can become something that we turn over and over again. I mean, if you wanted to read it like you read a novel, um, so old-fashioned, I know, um, you'd, read, you'd read it like in one setting almost, this, this length of, of material. You would read it uh, pretty fast. So you may read it one time all the way through in a sitting, and then you may read it in halves. You may read it in smaller portions. You may read it just as you have time on the bus or on the car ride or while you're waiting. But it's nice. It's pocketable. It's uh, print. I'm a snob. Um, and 
and it, it will uh, hopefully edify us as we study the Gospel of John. But that brings us to where we are today, which is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Last week we talked about this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And this idea that the Word takes up flesh in the world, that God is this Word, and that there's God and this Father. Now, one of the interesting things about John, just to go back a second, John uses Father like as much as all the other three Gospels combined, almost. It's trying to display that Jesus' intimate relationship as a son to the one he knows as God, as Father, is, is pivotal to the Gospel. And so that's what we saw in chapter 1. And what we have in chapter 2 is John the Baptist, who, like we said last week, is not John the Baptist so much in, in John's Gospels. He's John the Witness. He's one who witnesses to who Jesus is. He's not baptizing Jesus. There's not as much reference to his baptisms. There's some. But really what he's doing in John's, in John's Gospel, John, they need different names. Bad screenplay. Um, John is witnessing to who Jesus is. John is showing who Jesus is to the people. And one of the things he says is, is that he didn't recognize him, but that now he does, after the Spirit descends on him. And he calls out to his disciples that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that's sort of where I'd like for us to sort of just sit today. I had an idea that maybe we'd go a little bit further into the Gospel of John, or chapter 1, uh, the calling of the disciples and such. And the one thing I love to say about the calling of the disciples in John is they ask where he's staying, the first disciples, and his response to them is, come and see. The invitation to follow Jesus, for you and for us and for people who don't know Jesus, is this, where are you staying? Come and see. Come and take residency. Come and follow. We almost, there's this, there's this new apologetic that people are trying uh, explanation for the faith is see if living it lines up with reality. Seeing if living it makes your life more full. We we don't like that as apologetic sometimes because it's like, no, it'd be much better to win by logic and to make them believe through that. But I think if we're going to say what Jesus exemplifies for us is true, there's this come and see aspect of this journey of Jesus. There's this come and take residency, come and learn the ways of living from him so that you can exemplify what the trust that he has in this one he calls Father in your life. And so that's that part that I wasn't going to preach on, but I did anyways. So hard for me. But Jesus, John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. One of the things that's not clear, most of us know Jesus as the Lamb of God. It's something that we might say, give us... Give me names for Jesus, Prince of Peace, Wonderful Counselor. Somebody would inevitably say the Lamb of God. And yet at the time that John says this, or John writes this, John says this, both of them are involved in this, that this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's not clear what it's, he's referring to. So there's a couple options that we have before us. The first is, is if you Google Lamb of God, you get the heavy metal group, Lamb of God. That is not what John is referring to. I thought that was funny, because I kept Googling Lamb of God for image search, and Jonathan, you know these guys? I do, yeah. Yeah, did you tour with them? For a little bit. Yes. Uh, so Jonathan will tell you more about Lamb of God, uh, the heavy metal band. Are they Christians? Absolutely not. Okay. <laughs> so they are not ones who witness to the truth of God and Jesus Christ. But uh, every time you Google Lamb of God with image search, you get these friendly faces. Um, and I gotta say, that, that might be the most appropriate picture of them that I found. 
Um, there are several others where I'm like, oh, I can't sew that in church. Um, so that is not the Lamb of God that John is referring to. I just thought that was funny. Um, but we'll go backwards sort of on this. Is that there's, there's some scholars that think John is referring to the animal that's found in the thicket at Abraham's sacrifice. And so in the Old Testament, Abraham is told to take his son up Mount Moriah and sacrifice him to God. And Abraham goes and does that. And at the moment, he's about to strike, God says, stop. And he provides a ram that's caught in the, in the thorns on the side. Whether that sort of one way is that here is, here is Jesus as the Lamb of God, who's also, as we saw in the prologue, the Son of God who Jesus, God will offer up on the cross. And so Jesus serves as the lamb in that way. There's another way in which they talk about Jesus as the lamb of God, as the scapegoat. Now, we talked about this in Leviticus, is that Jesus dies on the Passover, not on the Day of Atonement, when they, when they would have sort of a scapegoat. The, the problem with this series, a lot of these have some problems. The problem with this one is it's a goat, so that's your problem. Um, <laughs> which, depending on how you read scripture, is either a very big problem or like, oh, but it's the image that matters. Um, and that goat, one of the goats, actually carries the sins. See, this is where this one works very well, is that it carries the sins off. So the one in Abraham's story doesn't seem to have a lot to do with bearing the sins. He's a, he's a substitute, but he doesn't seem to bear the sins. This scapegoat actually carries the sins off, but he's a goat. So that doesn't seem to work as well. This is, uh, I've never really seen this movie, although I've seen this clip from this movie. Are any Monty Python fans? Yes. Yes, okay. You know the rabbit with the teeth? Yes. Yes, okay. So there's this rabbit in the movie. Uh, you guys correct me if I get this wrong. But there's this rabbit, and then they, they're they all, uh, the Knights of the Round Table, is that what they are? They're soldiers. Uh, and they go, and they're like, oh, you can't go over there because there's this rabbit with the teeth. And they think, well, this must be a very big rabbit. And they get up, and it's just this little rabbit. And one of the guys goes, oh, I'll go fight him. This is no problem. And then through horrible special effects, the, the rabbit flies through the air and rips out his jugular. And um, this is connecting to the point when we get there. Uh, and like brutalizes half the army. Do they just give up? They just they get, run away. They run away from the rabbit. The rabbit has huge fangs. Yeah, it has huge fangs. Uh, pointy fangs, right? There's, I've never seen the movie, but it's a, it's a funny scene if you watch it on YouTube. Um, so anyways, it's the rabbit with the teeth, which is connecting to what I'm talking about here, is that there's this, this Jewish apocalyptic thing that's not in our Bible. It's a little bit in the Apocrypha, which it would be traveling around at the time of Jesus, of the lamb who conquers everything. It's like the rabbit with the teeth. It's like this victorious lamb that sort of conquers throughout the world. And it's part of what maybe informs what Don read for, to us from the book of Revelation, is that they're waiting for somebody to open this, this um, scroll, and nobody seems to be able to do it. And what happens is they tell them not to worry, because here comes a slain lamb. Somehow the strongest thing that's able to sort of open up this binding is a dead lamb. And when you think about a lamb, I mean, there's one up there. These aren't particularly tough animals. So it's an interesting part of the Christian imagination that we take something weak, we take something young, and we say that this is the thing that's capable. It's, it's that backwards logic that we're always called into in Christianity. That the poor shall be rich, that the rich will be sent away empty, that those who are weak will be strong, that those who mourn shall be comforted. It's this, this, this weird logic that always takes up in Christianity. And so that could be part of the lamb as well, the cosmic triumphant lamb or the lamb with the teeth. 
There's a gentle lamb in Jeremiah, but most of us don't think much about that. The next one is the perpetual lamb that's sacrificed every day in the morning and the evening in front of the temple. This one also isn't directly for sins, although all sort of animals offered at the temple sort of have this connection to be offered up to atone for sins. And, and people, John Calvin most clearly points this out, is that Jesus is the summarization and the fulfillment of all sacrifices. So Jesus, to say that he is not the, the ram caught in the thicket in the Abraham story is not true. Like, he is the fulfillment and the culmination of all these things, so much so that we don't do sacrifices anymore. That this is the end of sacrifice and what we see in Jesus. And so there is a morning lamb and an evening lamb sacrificed in front of the temple. And so Christ becomes this sort of perpetual lamb that's offered up to God. It's still not as quite as connected to the atonement. The next is the Passover lamb. Now John really will heighten up the Passover theme, especially when we get to the crucifixion. But as we talked about, again, when we were going through um, Exodus, the Passover lamb is not offered up for sins, but for freedom. The Passover lamb is a sign of God's victory in bringing us into new life. So the Passover lamb's connection is this gateway in which we move, in which God's judgment passes over us, but it lands on other people. And so this one is not so much for the forgiveness of sins, but for the exodus of the people, for God to create a new people. This is a powerful theme, I think, that Christians often miss in the New Testament, because we always want to make Jesus into the goat of, of the forgiveness of sins. And yet, really, if you follow the, that he dies on Passover, you follow that theme, is that he actually becomes the way of a new exodus, the way of new life. And so, as they sat in, sat in Egypt in the shadow of slavery, in the shadow of death, so too we, as Christians, sit in the shadow of death and slavery. And what Christ does, he doesn't liberate us from human conquerors in the cross, but he liberates us from the greater conqueror, the one that stands over all behind all that. Pharaoh, you'll get another Pharaoh. But if somebody could conquer death, you'll actually be free. If somebody could actually do that. And so Jesus' sacrifice is this one of freedom for us in Passover. But again, not much of a connection to the forgiveness of sins. But the one that seems to have taken the most root, and the one that the early church used the most often, is from the book of Isaiah, which is a passage that many of us are similar with. It says, of the Lord's servant, start on page one. Um, he will grow up like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one whom from people hid their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took on our pain and bore our suffering. Yet, considered him, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our inequities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We, all like sheep, have gone astray, each one of us has turned away, and the Lord has laid on him the inequity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter. And as a sheep before it shears his silence, he did not open his mouth. But oppression and judgment he has taken away, yet who of his generation pro protested? For it was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgressions of my people he was punished. 
who has assigned a grave with the wicked and in the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, though there was any deceit in his mouth. For yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And then the Lord makes his offering in life an offering for sin. He will see his offspring and prolong his days, and he and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of his life and be satisfied by the knowledge my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their inequities. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors, is how that portion ends. There you see, in the book of Isaiah, a powerful summary of the life of Christ. Not only that, but that he takes on our inequities. He takes on our infirmities. He takes on that which is unlovely within us and takes on the lowliest form. And he goes to the point of death. See, the thing about John's witness to John and John's gospel, lots of John's, is that, um, is that he's witnessing here to the truth of the story. It doesn't come back up again. But this is the Lamb of God who will bear away the sins of the world. That he is the one who will be cut off and go silently to take on the sin, the inequity, the faults of many. So we have two Greek words that I want us to, to sort of stop on for a moment. This one is uh, uh, the word for sin, heart, hartimaea, hartima. I'm looking at Hannah. Hartimaea. I was like, I knew it. Uh, but I, I lost the pronunciation. Hartimaea. Hermetia is the word for sin in scripture. It's, it contains this notion of missing the mark in some ways. But what happens in John's gospel that he comes and he will bear our sin, that this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Hermetia of the world, is that this word is used singularly in this passage. But what he doesn't take away is all the little actions. He doesn't take away all the fruit of sin. What Jesus does in his cross and death and resurrection is he gets to the root of it all. It's like when I go out and kill dandelions by pulling the tops off, they always come back. <laughs> Refuse to learn anything, that's the way I do it. But somebody told me once that the problem is you're not getting to the root <coughs> of it. You're just pulling the tops off. And what Jesus does when he takes the sin, not the sins, not all the little actions, but the sin, the heavy weight of the world, the guilt of collective existence upon himself, is that is that he's taking it all there's this there's this phrase in a book i like that summarizes his his death on the cross that says the world that he claims that john claims for him in john one is is the one that claims him back and in being claimed back he, he conquers those powers he takes on all the harmatia of the world now this next greek word is cosmos which is the one we often see translated world Cosmos. He takes on the sin of the cosmos. Now, this is where world doesn't do it justice, in my opinion. Now, there's a new, 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 New Testament translation that actually hangs on to this word cosmos when it translates world. But I think it's a powerful image because cosmos includes all the universal everything. It includes all things. And not only that, in the biblical imagination, it includes the heavens and the earth. It includes everything, all that's seen and unseen everything and jesus takes on the sin of the cosmos now we still use cosmos in a bigger way than we use world and so when it says that jesus takes on the sins of the world i think it's helpful for us to hear the whole realm of everything 
Now the great John, John reads this a little bit differently too, is that there's lots of thes that they take out because it makes it clunky in, in, in English, but this is the lamb of the God who takes on the sin of the world. This is not just one sacrifice on behalf of some God, on behalf of some people. The writer of the Gospel, John, wants to make it clear that this is the one who takes on all from the God. And the one for the sake of the cosmos. And so one of the things that I think happens when we think about staying is that is that Mar Maria Kumo would tell you to throw away this shirt. Anybody watch that show? No. She's the one who's trying to get you to minimize everything in your life. And she always she said in an article I read with her, it's like you have this shirt that has the stain on it, and you love the shirt, so you can't get rid of it, but you're never gonna wear it because it has the stain on it. Because nobody else is like that. Okay. You could say the one that doesn't fit anymore, and you're like, yeah, but when I lose that 15, 30 pounds, then I'll wear it. Um, you hang on to these things, right? And so what happens is, is what Jesus does, we talked about sin as pollution, which we'll maybe do with the, the next slide. But what Jesus does is he takes the stain of the world. This is one of the things we talk about with uh, Christmas every year, is that God, you would think, would have the opportunity to just junk the world. It's sin-soaked. It's stained. Why is he hanging on to this t-shirt that still has the stain in it? And you know, what God plans to do is to somehow come and remove the stain of sin in the world. To come and take that upon himself. Here, here we have my attempt at the world. <laughs> and yet here's what happens when, when sin sort of takes residency in this whole world. And what, what John is talking about is something like this. We personalize it. God does take away your sin and your sins. But the mission of Jesus Christ, and if you've been reading the first chapter of John, if you've been here, the logos, the wisdom, the life and light of the world becomes incarnate. We're talking about something much bigger. We're talking about a repair project to put the earth back on its axis in some ways. To sort of begin to repair and to resettle everything. So Jesus becomes this Lamb of God who takes on the sins of the world. He becomes one who, who, who when he rises, it says, the earth, uh, this was Ambrose, the earth rises with him. That Jesus rises from the grave. That Jesus binds himself to that which is stained so much that he becomes this purifying agent to which it removes that. So what does this mean for the life of believers? Is that we become part of Jesus in this way, that the sin is removed from our lives. What takes its place is this gift of joy and of life. It should be noted that John here talks about the Spirit right after in this passage. That he, I wash, John. I wash with water. But he will come with the Spirit. So as Christ takes out this is where the Christian life can go a little awry. Christ just takes out your sin, but doesn't put anything else in there. Not so. What does Christ does is takes out the sin of the world, removes the stain that seems to be in everything, removes that which is pulling it down. And what he does is deposits his spirit there, his advocate, his counselor, his presence, to empower us to live and to be the kind of life that he is so that we can be witnesses to this and to share this with the world. 
point of this isn't just that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, but he's also the one who gives us freedom and life on the other side of that. There's not much greater news for the Christian than that. And so we hear this message today, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. To close with this quote from the back of the bulletin, For he was a son and led as a lamb, and slaughtered as a sheep, and buried as a man, and rose from the dead as God, being by God his nature and his man. And a man, he is all things. He is the son in that he is begotten. He is the sheep in that he suffers. He is the human in that he is buried. He is God in that he is raised up. This is Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. God, let us behold and look. See that you are the Lamb of God who takes upon the sins of the world. One who takes upon the broken marriages. One who takes upon the addiction. One who takes on the violence. The emptiness, the hunger, the thirst. Because you're the one who takes on all of this. The world that you made claims you. Yet as a lamb, you are raised. As a son, you are raised. And you inherit life, break open the gates of death, and lead us into the resurrection. May we hear the news of you who takes these things on, who drives them out, deposits your spirit in their place so that we can be your resurrection people, so that we can be people of life and light, and that empowered by your name, we may share and witness to that in our world. We ask this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.